You're listening to The Right Process, a podcast in which one writer tells the story of crafting one work from concept to completion. I'm your host, Charlie Jensen. Hi, I'm Pete Sue, and I wrote a short story collection called If I Were the Ocean, I'd Carry You Home. Pete Su is a Taiwanese-American writer based in Pasadena, California. He's the author of the experimental chapbook, There is a Man. His work has also been featured in several journals and anthologies, including the Asian-American Writers' Workshops, The Margins, Friction, The Los Angeles Review, and Los Angeles Review of Books. He was a 2017 Penn Center USA Emerging Voices Fellow, as well as the 2017 Penn in the Community Writer-in-Residence. His debut short story collection, If I Were the Ocean, I'd Carry You Home, is scheduled to be released in fall 2022. Full of warmth, terror, and unsentimental humor, Pete Sue's debut story collection captures the essence of survival in a life set adrift. Children and young people navigate a world where the presence of violence and death rear themselves in everyday places, Vegas casinos, birthday parties, church services, and sunny days at the beach. Each story is a meditation on living in a world not made for us. The pervasive fear, the adaptations, the unexpected longings. A gripping and energetic debut, Sue's writing beats with the naked rhythms of an unsettled human heart. I didn't really have an idea for this collection when it started out. I was going to write a novel at first. This was in, I think, 2015. Started writing, and I didn't really know what I was doing, so I signed up for one of the classes at UCLA Extension. I thought I was a kind of a hotshot, so I skipped ahead to novel three. It was taught by Tony Duchesne, who's turned out to be just like a great human being and someone I've, you know, really continued to like and adore from his podcast, Drinks with Tony. I joined his class, didn't know what I was doing. I had a bunch of pages and we workshopped those pages, but the novel didn't go anywhere. And so eventually I had a hundred pages of a novel that wasn't working, but there were eight pages that I really loved out of those hundred. I just loved that one little scene. So I took that out and I started to submit it. And then that became the first short story that I've ever published. That was in the Asian American Writers Workshop. That became the first story in the collection. And from there, that's where I started getting rolling on writing stories instead of a novel. In 2016, I applied for the Pen America Emerging Voices Fellowship. And in that application, they require you to describe your current project, like a book-length project that you're working on. I did not have a book-length project that I was working on. The closest thing I had was a file full of stories, so I told them I was working on a short story collection. At the time, there wasn't really a concept. It was just kind of random stories. They did give me some feedback that that was the weakest part of my application and my interview, that my project was very vague. Anybody can call something a short story collection, but I didn't yet have an idea what it meant to have a cohesive collection as one singular work of art. And that took a lot of time to figure out, actually. So the timeline for the story collection, it really was from 2015 until like just last year when the final manuscript was turned in. Even up until then, I had a new story that I just finished that wasn't part of the original collection that was accepted by Red Hen that we fit in at the end. So I'd been writing short stories all the way through. And I think the process of it was... 
it, it was really meandering, you know, because it wasn't like I had a clear idea of what I was trying to accomplish in a book at the time. But what came out of it is that a lot of themes kept repeating themselves in my work. Something that kept showing up in stories were people being in situations where their idea of a normal life is lost. They've passed some threshold where what they had thought was normalcy no longer exists, and they find themselves in a new life. Whether that's like a parent abandoning them or a parent dying or otherwise losing a loved one, facing a moment of trauma or something that threatens their sense of existence. Those situations kept repeating themselves. That became a thread for the stories. And that became a way to organize like what stories were going to make it into the collection and what stories were not. I had written a lot of stories that weren't like that. They weren't really about that. So those stories got taken out. They went into other things, but the ones that were clearly about that situation stayed. I guess the narrative arc of a short story collection, that's when that really started happening. And that was something I hadn't really thought about before in terms of stories that a short story collection, it can be greatest hits kind of collection of someone's work. But a lot of times they have an arc of their own. Collections that I love the most have a very clear arc, like Olive Kitteridge, which feels like absolutely about one person. But it's not just random stories about that person's life. It goes through an arc of her development over time. You know, we reach back to like Visit from the Goon Squad, which is kind of a novel, but really is a collection of stories as well. Probably the most influential and what was coming out at the same time I was writing was Otessa Moshfeg, Homesick or Another World, which is short stories that are not linked in any specific way, but they tell a thematic story of what it's like to be out of place. And I think that in a lot of ways is what my work is about, having your world be lost and finding yourself in another place and in what happens now. I don't have a singular writing process. Pretty much all of my stories each had their own process. So I've tried a lot of different things. I've tried fitting stories into like a screenwriter's beat sheet, which, you know, like there was a book called Save the Cat. It's like a screenwriter's handbook. And there's another version of it called Save the Cat writes a novel. <laughs> I read both of those and they have like a 19 point beat sheet, you know, that starts with the opening image and then all the beats until you get to the final image. So I've tried to like put that lens over stories and make sure the stories are following, I guess, a traditional expected three act story arc. And that's worked for some stories. I've done that. And other times I've just had to admit that that doesn't work, that the story doesn't have a traditional arc and just had to like, keep at it until I could find my way through. One of the other things is I don't have like a consistent methodology of writing time. Like I don't have a specific writing space. I can say currently I'm working on a Western now. That's going to be my next novel. So what I do is I turn Netflix on and I put a Western on the TV and I turn the volume down and I just sit on the couch and write for like a few minutes and then get up and take a break. I will say one thing that has been helpful and that's been more consistent is I use a 25-minute timer. It's a 25 minutes on, five minutes off. And then when the bell goes off, I stop and take five minutes to get up and stretch so I, I don't get too tight in my mind and body. That's been really useful. 
And the other really consistent part of my writing process is workshop. No matter what, like day to day, like when do I write? How many hours do I write a day? Do I follow a word count or a time calendar? I've always tried to find room to workshop with other writers. And this started really early on in my process too. Like when I started trying to write for publication, I didn't know any literary writers at all. You know, I've grown up in LA. I still live in LA. And the only writers I knew were aspiring film and television writers. So I grabbed them and I said, hey, can we workshop? You know, I didn't even know the term workshop at the time. And that actually was phenomenal because they're writers in a different way. They kind of taught me a bunch of things about staging. Early on, I was writing and the commentary I'd get is like, hey, this is kind of like just talking heads. And they would be asking me like, like, where are they in space? Who's standing where in relation to who? What are their postures? What are their gestures? What are their movements? Like their proximity? So all that stuff I'd never thought about because in my head, I just see them and they're there. But these more visual artists, they think about that constantly. So that was extremely helpful just early on. But then I started taking the UCLA classes and I've taken quite a few short story classes with Ben Laurie and Paul Mandelbaum have been excellent. Ben's become like, you know, kind of my story guru because the way that he looks at story, he never pushes any stylistic agenda onto me as a student, but he's always looking at like, how does the story move? Like, you know, what makes sense here? What's happening that makes sense? What's happening that doesn't make sense? What's setting up an expectation and what's not fulfilling that expectation? And I still continue to check in with Ben. I take his workshop when I can. I have, you know, now a small circle of friends that we workshop together. I think that's been incredibly helpful, just getting other sets of eyes on my work, input on what other readers are taking in when they read my stories. So that's been a big deal. I think there's one other part that it's an important aspect of short story writing is the submission process of individual stories. So I think that's like, it's not necessary. I don't know if it's absolutely necessary. I think you can write a collection and just have it as a complete manuscript and submit it and publish it. But I feel like most story collections are at least partially previously published in journals and magazines. And in my book, about half of the stories are previously published. There's a lot to that, I think. There's the good and the bad of that, right? I think the good is that in that process, I saw what stories were working really well right away and what stories just were not landing because stories that were working well would either get accepted relatively quickly or at least get like some positive feedback from the editors so they would write a little note that said hey we really like this we can't use it but please send us something else or even sometimes like this is what we liked about it that gave me a sense of like okay what's working what's not working what needs revision what needs more maybe imagination to figure out like what's missing in this work. Cause sometimes stories, they work, but there's nothing about it that moves it into like the next level of, of interestingness for a piece of literature. I'm not saying that, you know, there's bad stories or bland stories, but sometimes stories are a lot like other stories and there's nothing to make them stand out. A little push to see like, hey, what's another spark that you can add to this? Another angle that you can add to this? That little bit of sparkliness. Getting into the habit of revision, constant revision, and constant patience. Because 
it takes forever sometimes for these journals to get back to you. And that's where you start to move into like, well, what's good and what's bad about the submission process. It teaches you patience, but it really kind of taxes the limits of that at the same time. I have one story, I won't name the journal, but they kept it for over a year without a response. And I checked in with them and they said, yeah, we like it. We're still thinking about it. And basically it was too late at some point, like that story is going to be in the book. And, uh, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't wait any longer because it was starting to bump up into like, well, when's that going to be published versus when's the book going to be published? And that's, that's a little unusual, like 360 five days is a little unusual, but it's not unheard of. Some journals do take that long. Some journals take even longer than that. So that's something to brace yourself for. In a lot of ways, that's what makes a short story collection slow to come together because there's that long, long individual submission process for each individual story. That's one of the things. The other thing is obviously just that it takes a long time to write something that you love and that you feel is ready for the world. With my first drafts, I, I usually just like crank them out really fast. Sometimes I'll write a story in a night, you know, just in like two, three hours. I'll just crank out the whole story from beginning to end. Because a lot of times the stories begin with just like an image of something. Like I'll have a picture of something. A sad person at a slot machine is like an image. And I love that image. It moves me. So then I just start writing that scene. What's she doing? what she's thinking about, what else is going on around her, and then that cranks out, becomes a story. For the most part, I don't think it would take more than maybe a week to write a first draft. And a lot of those first drafts don't go anywhere. I got to get them out and they've got to be like an entire, what I would call a short story arc, where it's like there's an image and then the character moves through that, encounters something that affects them. And that's kind of like the whole arc of a short story for me. And once I get to that affected part, then I'm kind of done writing. The first draft anyway. But then in terms of revision, that can take like literally years. I have stories on my computer that are five, six years old that are not finished. Many of them I've come back to over and over again and not been able to find a way to make it work as a story. There's no timetable for it for me anyway. But some of the methods I use in terms of how I revise, the most usual way is just straight up, I just start writing it over again. I start from the beginning and I rewrite sentence by sentence until I get to the end. Slow and tedious, but pretty effective because I forgot who said it. It might've been on the Right Process podcast. Somebody had said that, you know, when I rewrite something and if it sucks, I can't bring myself to type the words again. It really is true. Like when you rewrite something, it has to be good enough for you to expend the energy to just literally type the words again. I guess you would call that line editing, like going through line by line. But that's not usually enough. Like sometimes I have to just print the story out, just literally like take a pen and cross out all the sections that feel out of place, that are really clunky, that seem extraneous, that are boring, like massive amounts of just deleting sections. And I think that's one of the parts of writing that has helped me a lot, but I've had to learn. Writing is like a process of putting words on paper, but actually producing a piece of art to share with the world is not the same thing. It's a much more refined thing. And there's so many things that I've written that were meaningful to me, that were fun to write, that are still fun for me to read, but that don't 
make any sense as a piece of art to put into the world. So I've had stories that were, you know, 40 pages long that ended up being 12 pages at the end of it because there's so much of it is just me entertaining myself. And that's the fun part. But there's also parts of it that is just like me trying to figure out like what all is going on here. And that's the background stuff that doesn't need to be told in the story, but couldn't be discovered just by sitting around and thinking about it. I think there are writers that they go on long walks and they think about their work and that's how they get clarity on their ideas. I've never been able to work that way. Like the only way I can figure out what's going on is actually on the page. When I'm stuck, I have to write my way through it and then find through the writing where it goes, where I was confused, and where the confusion can be clarified. Again, there's just a lot of writing. I guess what I'm saying is there's a lot of revision, a lot of deleting, and a lot of writing discovery more than anything else. Writing these short stories that I didn't focus on much, but I am focusing on now in my new project is research. Most of these stories are very personal. The settings and events are things that I've first-hand knowledge of. They're not historical fiction for the most part. I guess the 1970s is historical fiction now, but still it's within my lifetime, you know. I didn't need to research a lot. I might have had to research like okay, what movies were out in 1977. And there's one story where even though I've had experience, you know, fishing and crabbing in Virginia, I don't know the ins and outs of it, so I had to watch some YouTubes and watch actual fishermen, boatmen, like, working to get an idea of what that looks like. That's been a luxury on my part. I haven't been at risk of getting sucked into a, a research hole. I do think that can happen. I think that's something I'm trying to be aware of now because it's like I'm writing a Western and I wasn't alive in 1870. There's a lot to learn. There's actually an unlimited amount to learn. There are unlimited numbers of books and movies and YouTubes of people showing you, you know, how to saddle a horse or like all the variations of boot spurs that horsemen would use. Stuff like that can take forever. There's some balance of that. And I think there's a tipping point too, where too much research kind of bogs down your mind and the creative part of the story gets lost in the accuracy of time period or of what the story is about versus what the story is, you know. In 2017, I had the wonderful and amazing opportunity to be part of the Pan America Emerging Voices Fellowship. It was an in-person fellowship in Los Angeles, and I had a mentorship with just a great local writer who's also a New York Times bestseller, J. Ryan Straddle. And he not only looked at my manuscript and looked at my stories, gave me feedback on that, but kind of really just showed me like the ins and outs of how to be a good literary citizen in Los Angeles. There's something to be said for that because Los Angeles is not really looked at as like a literary hotspot in America. You know, that's still New York City. Probably always will be because it's just so deeply entrenched as a literary culture there. So when people think serious literary writers, they typically think New York. And L.A. is more Hollywood, more movies and TV and music. That's something that you have to figure out. Like, it's not just automatic that people know what's going on literarily in Los Angeles. Jay Ryan really helped me to see, like, hey, we have readings, not now, but two years ago, we have readings like every day of the week in L.A. 
Like there are people out there, writers sharing their work every day. We have tons of literary magazines and journals here. Like most of the schools have one. UCLA Extension Writers Program has one now. I've been published in the UC Irvine's Fault Line. I know that USC has had stuff over the years. There's just so many great literary things going on in LA. That was a huge benefit. But in terms of the book specifically, so the fellowship really encourages you to focus on moving your book forward through the eight months of the fellowship. From where you start, they'd like to see you make progress on that through that time. And I think a lot of writers have actually made enough progress where by the end they have a completed manuscript that they can share, they can shop to agents or even directly to small presses. And that was what I was trying to do as well. So in that process, the fellowship at that time enrolled us in a class at UCLA, Advanced Short Story with Paul Mandelbaum. And that was where one of the stories in the collection came from, Astronauts. And that's one of my, I mean, it really is one of my favorite stories. It's a noir story. Paul was really valuable in that because, you know, I was trying to do some experimental, quirky things with it at first that I thought were really cute. It was really just a gritty, like, crime story. And that's where we landed with it in the class. And the class was awesome because another workshopper who had a lot of knowledge about, like, how big rigs and trucks work. <laughs> and he basically just wrote, like, the entire description of what one of the machineries would look like and how it would work uh, and gave that to me as a gift. It was really cool. Within the fellowship itself, we had a workshop that was private for the fellows with Alex Espinoza, who's another like, great teacher in LA and, and a novelist, great friend, great fan of his. And we worked on a story there. I actually workshopped that same story, astronauts in his class as well. The fellowship at that time set up three separate readings for us. All of those readings, I shared, you know, parts of stories that I'd written. <laughs> Again, astronauts, I, I had read in one of those readings, but two other stories that didn't make this collection that are going to be in other works. And that was another part of the process. It's like uh, getting comfortable with sharing your work within the oral tradition. So that was really cool and that helped a lot. And it continues to help. Being a fellow doesn't end at the end of the fellowship. I'm very close with 2017 cohort. The five of us still get on Zoom regularly. We're all over the world now, not just here in LA, but DC, Amsterdam, and Brazil. We can't meet in person very often, but we do try to get together on Zoom and just chat it out about writing, but about life too. Some of my closest writing friends in the world. And the opportunities to stay involved with the community keep showing up through Penn. Penn does a lot more than the Emerging Writers Fellowship. Just recently, they published a book. It's like a handbook for writers in prison or incarcerated writers, which includes like a, a craft section and also a section of short pieces by incarcerated writers. That's one of their big projects. They definitely continue to try to protect freedom of speech, freedom to write throughout the world. They try to fund writers in emergencies, Pan America Emergency Writers Fund. And they do huge events all the time, too. So Pan America has become a hub of my literary life. To get the manuscript into its final form, it still took a little bit of work. I had maybe 15 stories, and I put them all into a manuscript. And I started submitting it to small press contests or university publishers have contests sometimes. I submitted it to maybe five or six of those kinds of things. It d didn't even move the needle. 
there was no interest. I didn't make a finalist cut or anything like that. And so I looked at it again and I started trying to think like, you know, what's not working with this collection? Like these stories, maybe they work individually, but it's not working as a whole. And so I took a few months just to really like figure that out and look at other collections that were working like uh, Otessa's book I mentioned earlier, but also there's some linked collections. CL Jew has a collection called Cake Time. The title is a novel in stories. It's a linked collection and it's chronologically linked. It's one character throughout the whole book. My book's not like, there's some overlap. There's multiple stories with the same characters, but there's not all one character. But I took from that the idea that chronological storytelling is a basic tenet of storytelling. That's not hard to do as an organizational principle, and it's not hard for a reader to follow along with. So I took this age chronology. So the protagonist's age was gonna determine where that story fit in the collection. And then it started to look better right away. <laughs> and then reading it through, so this is tedious, but reading the whole thing out loud through gave me an idea like, okay, how did the transitions work? Because short story transitions, not everybody reads a short story collection straight through, but they should be able to and have it make sense emotionally and logically. Mine was a little clunky that way. Like there was something off about the transitions from story to story. And I wasn't sure what it was at first. So I started to play with things. And again, this is just tinkering and it takes a lot of time, but I think it's worth it. I started playing with things like point of view, Sometimes two first-person points of view, one after the other, that are different characters, can be jarring, depending on the story. So that was a little bit of work to like, okay, so this story has to move to third-person point of view? That's kind of a chore, <laughs> but <laughs> it's better for the collection. It's a little bit heartbreaking because sometimes the stories individually, there's a story in particular, it's called Main and Main in the book, and individually, it works better in the first-person point of view. But in the collection, it just had to be third-person. Otherwise, it was going to be too jarring. It was going to be kind of confusing. We wouldn't be sure if this was the same character as the last story or if there was an overlap. It had to be given that voice in that position in the book. There's that kind of work, just fixing point of view, fixing stories that some stories need to be, for me anyway, had to be present tense. Some stories had to be past tense. And that was a little bit of work. Sometimes I'll write a story that's kind of experimental or sometimes very experimental, but this collection is mostly a realistic work. The experimental stuff had to be dialed back, like stuff that was weird, not just in terms of magical realism kind of weirdness, but weird in terms of like how the prose is put together had to be dialed back. So that's kind of like the tinkering to turn a bunch of stories into one thing, like a team, you know, <laughs> it could be a bunch of pretty good players, but if they don't know how to work together as a team, then it's not going to work. Did the next round of submitting, and so I submitted it to a couple of other contests as well as Red Hen. And <laughs> Red Hen I was really excited about because Susan Strait was the judge for my collection, and she is one of the great treasures of Southern California writing. The way that she writes Southern California is not at all what you would think of nationally or globally as, as LA or SoCal. It's not Hollywood. It's not like Malibu Beach. And it's also not like, you know, gritty crime kind of stuff. It's just everyday real people that live, grew up here generationally sometimes and what their lives are like. And I think that's 
kind of what I write. At least that's in the ballpark of what I write. We don't have the same style and stuff and we don't have the same stories, but we have similar points of view about what LA and what Southern California is about. And she picked my collection and, you know, I've now been working with Red Hand and they've been absolutely phenomenal. Kate Gale and Toby Harper are the managers of that organization and they've been incredibly supportive. I couldn't be happier with them. It's really just the best case scenario for, I think, for this collection. So as far as editing after the manuscript was accepted, there were rounds of copy editing. We had to go through basic stuff like grammar. I use a lot of, I guess, Americanization of Chinese words of Mandarin. And there are ways you're supposed to write that. So I still don't fully understand this process, but they fixed a lot of that kind of stuff. So that's really a lot of the cleaning up. I think overall, since the stories have been so heavily edited already, they've been revised, all of them, many times by me, and half of them have gone through editorial with magazines and journals. There wasn't very much developmental editing to do or copy editing to do after that. There was some discussion, and this was an interesting part for me, about how is this story going to come across in the marketplace. And Kate and Toby were completely open to my artistic vision. So any suggestions they had were really up to me to implement or not. Some of them I did, some of them I didn't. Because in the end, we're hoping the book sells, of course. But I think Red Hen and myself also, we look at it first as a work of art. And so we're trying to produce something that we really believe in artistically. And then secondly, we hope that we can sell copies of it. That process was not at all painful. It was very warm and entertaining. We had a lot of laughs and we had some deep conversations too. And in the end, I think we came together with something that we're we're all really happy with. In terms of what I would say to an early version of myself, setting out with this goal in mind to publish a, a short story collection, Trust the process, because a lot of the things that happen, I wasn't going to be able to plan for. It wasn't like I could dream up how I was going to do this from the beginning. It was more just continuing to, you know, get up every day and look at something I could do for a story or for the collection and do that one thing and see where that led. And then in hindsight, I think you see the structure, oh, this is how this came to be. But in the middle of it, it was just like writing submitting, talking to people, reading, the things that don't seem like they add up to anything, but in the end they tell the complete story of how this thing came from somewhere buried in the bottom of your brain into something that's going to be out in the world. So that's what I would tell myself. Not worry about the big picture too much, but just to keep moving forward with it and it'll work itself out. And it did. And the caveat to that is I know there's obviously writers that that have like a vision in the beginning. It's a clear vision and they can articulate it from the start. And when they write it, it's more about the process of like discipline and getting the words down and the discipline to revise and then the luck of, you know, finding the right audience. So there's a lot of ways to do this. But for me, it's constantly a discovery process. Like even now, as I'm moving forward to my next project, I don't know what I'm doing at all. I have no idea. I'm just continuing to write and putting in the you know, the pages or, or the hours, whatever they are, and trying to see you know, what doors open along the way. And now, a reading from If I Were the Ocean, I'd Carry You Home. 
They know of each other in the coincidental kind of way. She is the cousin of his cousin's boyfriend. Also, they have almost the same last name. His is Chang. Hers is Chang. All this makes it sound like they are related, but they aren't. When they first meet in real life, he sees her in the kitchen at a party. She's drinking a soda out of the can. She's got something baking in the oven, like a dessert. She takes it out, it's graham crackers and some kind of yellow sauce. It looks terrible, but she looks great, pretty, like in her pictures, but pale and also shorter, less Korean, if that makes sense, less assertive, less sociable. He guesses those kinds of things show differently in pictures, but she moves like she's floating in water, out of time with the music, but in time with the deep, the invisible, like she's one with God or the ocean. These are the kinds of things he might say to describe someone he wants to sleep with. He does want to sleep with her. He also thinks he could be in love with her, but he isn't available and neither is she. So he keeps his distance. He hides out in the kitchen. He drinks several beers. He keeps count in his head. Seven. That's too many. He's drunk, maybe. He's a quiet drunk. He's also a quiet, sober person. She keeps coming to talk to him, as if they're flirting. He doesn't think she's good at flirting. He is not good at flirting. He doesn't know for sure that they're flirting, but she touches his arm when she talks to him. This is maybe the fourth time she's touched his arm like this. She says, I don't know why I keep touching your arm. He pays close attention to her exact words. I don't know why I keep touching your arm. He tries to interpret this. He wants it to tell him that she wants to sleep with him. He also wants it to tell him how to talk to her. He wants to say things to her. He can feel his heart in his throat. Then the moment passes. Her boyfriend comes and joins their conversation. Her boyfriend's name is Walt Gurley. Walt is a tall, muscular, Scots-Irish guy with Pokemon tattoos up and down his arm. He likes Walt. He's a fan of Pokemon. And also, Walt talks a lot, which means he doesn't have to talk as much. Walt says, Who's this? He wonders why Walt doesn't recognize him. They go to the same school. They're almost the same major. His is literature. Walt's is creative writing. She says, this is James Chang's cousin. He puts his hand out to Walt. He's about to introduce himself when Walt slaps his hand away and gives him a hug. Hey, no way. Jimmy Chang's cousin? I fucking love Jimmy. Walt holds him for a long time. It is a full contact hug, chest to chest, Stomach to stomach, penis to penis. He arches his back to keep their penises from touching. It doesn't help. Walt is very strong. He gives in, he relaxes, he hugs Walt back. It feels really great. He's about to lay his head on Walt's shoulder when Walt lets go, keeping one arm around his neck. Walt grabs her with the other arm, so it's a Walt sandwich. Him to the left and her to the right. He wonders if something sexual could happen with the three of them. It's not exactly what he wants, but he wouldn't say no either. Then his girlfriend calls from across the room. He sees her calling. She's hard to miss. She is tall and has bright blonde hair. It's amazing, and it's her real hair. Walt says, That your girl? He nods. Maggie. He waits for Walt to say something approving. Walt doesn't say anything approving. Maggie motions for him to come over. Walt holds tight and then motions for Maggie to come to them. Maggie tilts her head to the side and frowns. 
he says, I better go. Walt grabs the back of his neck and shakes him gently and says, All right, Jimmy's cousin, take it easy then. He looks past Walt and says, See you later, Hannah. It's loud. He doesn't know if Hannah hears him. He turns and starts to walk back to Maggie. As he gets turned around, he feels a slap on his ass. He turns back. It's Walt. The Right Process is hosted and curated by me, Charlie Jensen. This season was produced by Jamie Moss. The Writers Program offers courses, certificates, and services that help writers achieve their writing goals one page at a time. For more information, visit writers.uclaextension.edu.